Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We got a real cool guest on the other side of our screen. Notice I didn't say the thing. I said the other side of the screen. <laughs> I, can you just tell I just finished editing the last one? Yeah. So, yeah, our, our guests would have no idea. We were, we were talking about... Well, they about, will by the time this one yes, comes out. Yes, we were talking about how... Um, we nobody says like you know I'm going to look something. It's I'm going to Google something. You don't say pass me a tissue. It's pass me a Kleenex. And so it's just become like when you're talking to somebody virtually, it's like we're we going to zoom. Like that's just what's expected. Are there yeah. are there other things like I know some people maybe use like Google Meet, but really like I've never heard anyone say you want to Google Meet. No, you we're we're zooming. Everything. Even if zoom. we end up using GoToMeeting, we still call it. Well, let's set up a Zoom meeting. Yeah. Everything is just yeah. become Zoom now. <laughs> Mark's looking at me because he was saying the last episode. He's like, Zoom doesn't pay me, man. I'm not going to keep <laughs> giving them free advertising. <laughs> like, and now you're saying it. <laughs> we don't We don't even, it wouldn't matter. Even if, even if they were paying us, Zoom doesn't even need advertising anymore. Like I said, they've become Kleenex. It's pretty entrenched. <laughs> they've become Kleenex. They've become Kleenex. Some of my white mice snotted. Well, I do have a Ama- cold. Amanda Cook quotes of the year, Zoom has become Kleenex. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> I love it. Well, hey, everyone. It's Amanda. And we do have a cool guest on the other side of our Zoom. It's a Monday evening and we've got Troy talking to us. He was on an episode um, a few years ago. I thought it was 2020. He says 2019. I will take his word for it, it. We could just look it up. But he Maybe came on to talk to us a little bit about his thoughts on pain. And he is an educator. Um, I'll let you give his whole background because he's done a lot of teaching in different places. And when we first spoke to him it's because he wanted to start bringing some of the material he teaches to Canada so so we did that uh Conrad Institute has hosted his course a couple of times one of his courses he'll talk to you about others and we had him present at the Canadian Massage Conference it was 2020 it was 2020 oh my goodness I'm the I'm, fourth month 17th day April 17th. 2020 that's okay. when that's when it was released I'll never question your memory again Amanda uh, that's not true I might <laughs> you might and that's and that's fair so Troy is back to talk to us again um because he is he's does have an upcoming course here in Toronto, and he's also going to be probably presenting at the CMC again this year. So we just invited him back on to talk about some of the new courses he's developing, um, some of his thoughts on pain. And, you know, since we talked back in 2020, my whole thought process surrounding the stuff he does has changed. So it'll be inter- it'll be a different conversation than we had three changed, years ago. Changed how? I mean, I think I've learned a lot more. When I first talked to Troy, I was like, give me the basics. Like, I don't understand what it what is pain science teaching. It was such a basic level of knowledge that I had three gotcha. years ago. So it'll be a different conversation today. And I've even sat in on Troy's course now, which is making me feel like I have a lot more to add to the conversation this time around. Well, I remember I remember when you sat in in October when I was teaching there. I remember you sat in on the second day and you said, "Oh, now that I've sat in on part of your class, I think I need to sit on the first class, first portion." Yeah, I think I need to do the first it's a day. lot more material than I thought. Yeah, see? All the things you can learn. So, Troy, for those people who didn't hear you when you were on back in 2020, can you provide the listeners with a little bit of background on you, an introduction, how long you've been in this profession, and what led you to becoming a continuing educator and especially focusing on pain the way you do? Yeah, thanks for having me on again, guys. Uh, For all those listeners who don't know me, I'm Troy Levine. I 
have been a massage therapist since 2004. I went to school at the Boulder College of Massage Therapy, uh, and I started teaching in 2012 for the Kinesiotaping Association. And then in 2015, I started getting interested <clears throat> in teaching my own material. So I started creating a class, which I call the Sensory Approach to Manual Therapy. And I started teaching it in 2018. So I spent a good three, four years really creating it and designing it and trying to make it better. And then taught it in 2019 a few times. In 2020, I had it lined up to teach internationally. I was going to be in Australia and New Zealand and Ireland and Germany. And I was very excited. And then the pandemic hit. And <laughs> and only last year that I started teaching it again. And uh, I used to, I mean, my massage therapy background i used to do a lot of sports massage you know, olympic pre-games world championships the tour de france things like that um worked in the nhl worked with uh, a lot of different sports at all different levels the mls uh, the colorado rapids i used to be one of their therapists and and then in 2017 i actually shifted quite a bit and went to pediatric care i had a baby girl in 2013 and i started doing a lot of infant massage and pediatric massage and then in 2017 became really impassioned by it and it was really in 2017 where I started getting a different understanding of the human body. Uh, and if people haven't taken pediatric massage education classes before, I highly recommend it. I don't teach them, uh, but I highly recommend it because when we do a lot of pediatric information and you learn a lot about them, it really changes our understanding of how we treat grownups, which is a really different experience. Um, and then lately, you know, teaching at the Canadian Massage Conference last year was a pretty amazing experience for me. Uh, it was really enjoyable to be around a lot of the other, other educators. Um, and it gave me the opportunity to like really branch out and create smaller classes. And recently that's been, I mean, the fact that you guys asked me to fill out proposals for the next one is really great because it made me create some new classes, which I'm really excited about as well. And a lot of my classes are really heavily research-based. I'm a published researcher with a few universities in the United States, a couple different papers, things like that, um, both with kinesiotaping and massage therapy and trying to start up another one right now with actually a company in Toronto. So we're hoping that's going to keep going somewhere um, so we can do a large-scale research paper on massage therapy and things like that. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's 20 years in, right? Like, Anybody who's been practicing in in any industry for 20 years, you got a lot of stories and a lot of experiences and hopefully a lot of knowledge to share. And that's kind of why I went into teaching. I I kind of got tired of hearing the same thing from instructor after instructor after instructor of how the fascia works in the body and how orthopedic treatment's important, how trigger points work, uh, hint, hint, they don't, and how, you know, just over and over and over again, it got really frustrating to hear the same thing repeated just out of a different mouth. And so it became one of my things to start teaching something different. And I think pain and our understanding of pain and our culturally, even our, our thought process around pain needs to modify. And that's, that's really where the future I think of massage therapy is, is changing, not necessarily the client's understanding of their injury, but changing their understanding and their relationship to pain. And then the injury tends to heal of its own accord almost. All right. There's two directions I want to go. So I'm going to start with you. You mentioned your your class that you've uh, developed and you've already started teaching. We'll get into the new material in a minute, but the original class, sensory approach to manual therapy. If somebody were to hear that, what do you th what do you think people think that is? And what like what is sensory approach to manual therapy? What is the basic understanding or the 
what you hope that therapists get out of taking that type of course? That's a great question. And I think when people hear the name, they have a very different understanding of what it is that they'll get out of the class. Um, I tried to come up with a better title for it, but I honestly couldn't, which is why I came up with that one. Um, the sensory approach to manual therapy is the idea that the entirety of our eight senses, uh, so we have our five basic senses, and then we add to that proprioception, interoception, and vestibular senses, which are often ignored uh, or not even known of in the massage therapy community. And it's not just the massage therapy community. I mean, orthopedic or osteo, acupuncture, physio, you know, a lot of these people, they don't talk about those senses as well. Um, I think people forget that the human experience around pain and around manual therapy and interactions with other humans is not just touch. It's not just sound. It's not just light. It's the entirety of our experience. And so oftentimes when we are living with pain, that pain is an alarm that is going off inside the brain due to the eight senses being overwhelmed. And so when I talk about the sensory approach to manual therapy, the goal is to incorporate the idea that just treating with touch is one aspect of the treatment, but that incorporating the idea that their balance might be off and that's taking up some brain space, that they might be bloated and that's taking up some brain space, that um, you know they may not be hearing the music if they have hearing aids or they may not be hearing you and that's taking up some brain space. And all of this consumption of brain space is leaving little room in their mind for compensation around their pain. So their alarm system is hypervigilant. So when we talk about the sensory approach to manual therapy, the goal is to help therapists understand that treatment needs to be modified based on the stress responses your clients give you. So treatments don't last an hour. Treatments shouldn't last an hour. And most clients who are experiencing pain do not want an hour of treatment. If you're getting a relaxing session and you're there for self-care, an hour session is people love it and including myself. But when you're in pain, they want to know they feel better. And when their pain is gone, they want to go test it and they want to go see, can they walk with their plantar fasciitis? But it shouldn't necessarily take an hour because their system will often get overwhelmed. And that overwhelmed state really stems from the sensory system being overwhelmed. And the scientific term for that would be called allostatic load. You know, we have a level of daily stress that we can manage and without being overwhelmed. That is our allostatic load. The moment it is overwhelmed, we would experience pain. And that would be allostatic overload. And allostatic overload, just the definition is the cumulative stresses of life, which include things like gravity and temperature and what you eat and how much water you've had and how much sleep you've had, and let alone how much pain you're experiencing with that injury or a broken foot or the fight you've had with your spouse or your children or your friends or your family members. All of that together is what creates a reaction to pain. And so when we talk about the sensory approach, the goal is to incorporate when we say holistic in massage therapy, this is holistic. It's the entirety of their existence is why they're in pain, not I twisted my ankle. But, and but I, for, sorry, for the other part of your question is what do people think about when they hear sensory approach? I think they think uh, usually something intimate. I've had that response a few times that they think it's something intimate or that they think it's um, more similar to what a, a new class, which I will be teaching, which is called ASMR. Uh, I think if they think it's more related to that like possibly, oh, hot and cold differences. Um, I've heard people ask if it's going to be a massage that plays with textile or texture. So prickly versus light versus soft, things like that versus deep. Um, and that's not necessarily it. It's more uh, a holistic approach to someone's discomfort and pain. You said a lot of things 
in that description. And now, like, as I'm as I'm listening, sorry, what'd you say? I don't know if that's what I would have thought if if I was just to hear the title. Yeah, I, I, I don't think, think that's. What I, I think thought. I would have went immediately to all things sensory, and then how manual therapy can affect all things sensory. So, so I would have immediately jumped to things like decompression, like vibration, like all of those little pieces where you have these mechanoreceptors that, that, that sense this kind of stuff and then you're, you're, you're tuning into that. Like that's what I would have jumped to. Yeah. But I'm, but I'm also an idiot. And, and I, I, I love that one and I think it's much more accurate. Uh, and I think, I mean, that's what I hope therapists take away from it. But I have had some more unique questions right, right. on what people think it means. Well, you said a lot in the description and I think, you know, as you were talking, I was like thinking back to our discussion in 2020, and you probably described it very similarly. I could probably go back and listen to our original recording, and it was probably something very similar. And again, I think I heard it, but I wasn't really hearing it. Like, I couldn't visualize, like, well, what do you mean, like, a holistic approach? Like, how are we, you know, I think I was overcomplicating it. And then again, once I sat in on your class, I was like, oh, this isn't all that overcomplicated as I expected it to be. Like it was actually a lot more um, practical. I was imagining, you know, being in like a lecture and, you know, having you talk to me about all of this theoretical stuff that then I was supposed to be able to take these concepts and incorporate them into my practice. And there was a lot of practical application in in at least the one day that I sat it on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's part of it, right? Like we are still massage therapists at heart. And the course is still designed for manual therapists, not just massage therapists. But the goal is we still work with our hands and we still work with our clients and we still want them to do exercise and live pain-free. Uh, I love theory classes. I read lots of research and theory. But when it comes to practical application, that is the reason for it. You know, like one of the classes I'm thinking about trying to create is uh, going to be a course on essentially the conflict that exists innately within the biopsychosocial approach and evidence-based medicine. And there's this conflict that exists, which honestly doesn't have to exist, but is present. And one of the reasons it's quite frequently present is that the evidence tells us one thing, and then the biopsychosocial approach obviously recommends something different because the biopsychosocial approach has a clinical value, whereas sometimes the evidence-based has a clinical value. And oftentimes there's a conflict there. And I think a lot of people, when they deal with evidence-based or biopsychosocial, forget that on paper is one thing, but in practice, it's another. And practice is what we do. So it doesn't matter what it says on paper. Does your client walk away feeling better? That's the key thing. Uh, was it a placebo or was it real? Honestly, your client doesn't care. And it's good for us to know because we want to be able to replicate it. But the truth is, I don't care that much either on what made my client feel better. I want them to feel better. And if I can duplicate it, all the better. And that's the goal. And so when it comes to a lot of the classes, yes, it sounds like a lot of theory, but we're going to add lots of practical because ultimately it's about walking away with a different experience with what to do with our hands and what to do with exercises for our clients and what to do with exercises for our minds because it plays into a lot of what we do with pain. Um, yeah, so I, I, it is very theoretical. There's a lot of research in the class as well, though. I think it's like a 162 research papers are part of the manual of two days and it, it can be a little heavy at the same time. So I, I have another question. At the beginning, I said I could go, I want to go two ways. So I was trying, like the whole time I'm listening to you, but I'm also trying not to forget this other train of thoughts. This is totally different but you reminded me just now bringing up pain. You started out your career, you said, working with a lot of athletes and working with sports teams. And I mean, Mark and I have had this conversation with many therapists, with sport therapists, um, even just amongst ourselves about, um, 
you know, manual therapy, a lot of us as therapists, like we are, our practice is focused on function and optimal function. It's not so much surrounding pain. And you started out working with athletes. How did working in pediatrics shift your focus to look a little bit more about on about pain? I, I was trying to figure out how that put you in that space. So I think the first thing that made me really appreciate the pediatrics education that I learned. One was the speaker, uh, Tina Allen, who uh, was definitely a mentor of mine. Uh, she's she's a, a close friend. She's someone who I hold very dear to my heart, but she happens to also be an incredible educator. And she taught this class. And there's this, there was this one section of the class that I remember very clearly, which was about the nervous system. And we had these little dolls that we practiced massage on. And, you know, my, my doll was like the size of a cabbage patch doll, for example. And we were practicing massage on it. And she said, and she, she was saying, just remember that when the child is that large, their nervous system, when you grow, it's the same nervous system. The only difference is when you're five foot or six foot tall, that level of nervous system is now stretched out over five or six feet. But when you're 12 inches long, the same amount of sensory system is available to you. It's just condensed into 12 inches, which means when you touch a child who's, you know, yay large, a newborn, an infant, a three-year-old, your finger touching them like this will light up m- almost more sensory systems available to us, mechanoreceptors and chemoceptors and all that, than me doing my whole palm on a grown-up because the sensory system is just so spread out as we age. And I remember hearing that and going, that's so interesting to me that when a child is experiencing pain, they might be overreacting because they don't fully understand pain yet. They don't understand their perception of pain. They might be overreacting because of you know attention seeking, but there's a component to it that is physiological where they're stimulated at a certain level. And so, you know, a child with Down syndrome's pinching somebody in the playground is often not done on purpose. It's often because they lack a certain level of proprioceptors in their palm. So they have to squeeze extra hard to create a proprioceptive response in their palm that tells their brain that is the appropriate amount of force needed to hang onto that object. Whereas a child without Down syndromes will hold with less force because they get that proprioceptive response quicker. And a child with cerebral palsy will grip and prior to being enough force to grip the object, will get that same response in their proprioceptor saying that's enough force. So a child with CP will use very little force to retain an object. And a child with Down syndromes will use a lot of force. And to me, it made me realize this our sensory system is a spectrum. You know, some people are very highly attuned in some chemoreceptors and mechanoreceptors, and some are very low attuned. And everyone, you know, there's this average in there. And when I started thinking that, I realized adults are the same thing. When we grow up, our systems are just either highly tuned to be hypervigilant through the sensory system or lack of vigilance through the sensory system. And different areas of our body will have adapted over time and function and use and injury to change. And when I started doing that, I said, I I can't, we can't treat the human body and everybody, you know, three people come with plantar fasciitis. We can't treat them the same way because we have to also look at their sensory system and say, are they more, more highly attuned? Are they low attuned or are they just average? 
And on top of that, has their lifestyle made it that that's the difference or is it systemic? Because that will change the exercises we give them, the dosage of exercise, the resistance of exercise. It'll change the pressure that you'll treat the client with, you know, using your elbow versus using your thumb. So the sensory system started doing that. And that really came from these pediatric classes where we start, I started realizing, oh my God, the nervous system is, it doesn't grow as we age. It just stretches out, which is, is kind of mind blowing to think about when we're, when we're playing with kids, you know, like be more gentle in theory, because their system is so compacted. I thought for me, it was, for me, it was when I started to think of that, it, it really made me shift how I treated all my clientele and even athletes, you know, especially with athletes, because there are areas where an athlete will be very hard on their body. And so they're intentionally tuning out the stimulus. And then there are other areas where they will be very weak in their body, mainly oppositional, you know, antagonistic tissue, but also they spend so much of their time being disciplined in certain aspects of their life. And if their sport is one that involves, you know, low weight, like cycling or things like that, uh, you know, long distance running, things like that, they're going to be real thin. And so they spend a lot of their life being disciplined around their nutrition, their consumption of drinks, let alone their exercise and their sleep. And so in one area of their life, they're very disciplined. So when it comes to other areas of their life, like let's say mental fortitude, they're strong, but emotional fortitude, they might not be strong, or they may not have the ability to be patient in other aspects of their life because they've cons- they've put so much energy to one aspect of their life. Um, and you see, we see that a lot with athletes. They're doing great. They're doing great. They snap. Uh, Zinedine Zidane is a great example, you know, in the 2006 world cup, when he headbunted the Italian player, there's this certain point with athletes, um, where they're either able to maintain their allostatic load or they do not maintain it. And a lot of that has to do with how much they keep so much in control around their discipline. But again, that, that level of discipline just adds to stressors in their life. And those stressors are all related to the sensory system. One of those eight senses is being stimulated through that discipline. And so it, it plays into how they receive treatment as well. Most athletes that I've seen on, especially the weight builders and the bodybuilders, they cannot handle a lot of weight. They can't handle a lot of pressure, but my desk jockeys who sit at a desk all day and have paresthesia in their upper back because they're not really aware of the shoulder blades, I can lean in on them with an elbow and they barely register that it's uncomfortable. And yet my bodybuilders who are massive can barely handle that body weight. Like as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of like my own clients and I'm like, yeah, man, these athletes uh, that I think I would be able to like walk all over them or like stick my elbow in them. They're like, no, thank you. Don't do that. But yeah, the little teeny tiny woman that comes in for treatment every couple of weeks is like, can you just shove your elbow right between my shoulder blades, please? Thanks. Just just leave it there. Don't do anything else. I'm like, well, and push as hard as you can. I'm not going to do that, but <laughs> at least I know what you're feeling a little bit now. And and it brings up, a, you know, it's another component to the sensory system. It's kinesthetic awareness. You know, our awareness of self goes beyond the mental and emotional and spiritual components. There is a physical component of being able to say, you know, when client, when, when I receive treatment, I, I'm often very much in my head and someone, someone will treat me and I might be like, oh, that's T12. And it's not in my head for judgment of, oh, they're doing a bad job. It's more, I'm just interested in my own anatomy. And so, especially like I've had a lot of broken bones and I've got a lot of injuries from being pretty aggressive with my body through my life and surgeries and stuff. So when they're like on one of my broken, my former broken ribs, or they're on where they took my hamstring out for a surgery and I can feel the divot, 
I, I enjoy that sensation. So that's high kinesthetic awareness. And most therapists, due to having taken cadaver classes or being good in anatomy, have a great kinesthetic awareness. But most clients don't. Athletes tend to have a very good kinesthetic awareness. They're in tune with their body. They notice very quickly when they start feeling uncomfortable. Oh, you know, like I'm getting an ache or a pain. That could be a, a nagging problem. But the general population tends to have poor kinesthetic awareness. And it, it's one of the things that leads to discomfort. And so I think it's another interesting aspect of the sensory system is that some people have kinesthetic awareness. That can be a trained attribute and some don't. Uh, and how it relates to their discomfort. How do you think people need to understand their pain differently? So I'm like, you know, listening to you, I'm I'm getting a better understanding of like, okay, we are looking at a person more holistically, understanding their whole experience, taking into account all their senses, not just the five. And, you know, like I'm I'm getting this, but you started out and saying like, the way people understand their pain. So now you're talking about, you know, you having a good kinesthetic awareness, athletes, and, you know, the general population doesn't. So when it comes to something like chronic pain, how are you incorporating, um, I don't know if it's like your use of language or, you know, what you what are you doing with them to make them have a different understanding of their pain? Yeah, one of, one of the things that I do now that I've just started, uh, again, and it's kind of a, I've been doing a lot of backcountry skiing lately. And so it was this realization I had while I was skiing, and it only happened since December. <clears throat> I decided to, um, well, begin the process of writing a book called The Evolution of Pain in Humanity. Um, and how we as a species have evolved throughout time as it relates to pain, you know, so going from primates who brachiate in the trees to no longer being at the brachiate. And now if you put your arms in those position, it hurts our capsules. So pain has taken a direct, let alone, yes, we've moved out of the trees. So there's, there's a multifaceted component to why we no longer swing from branch to branch, but pain is one of those components or why we wear shoes and no longer walk around barefoot. So as I was thinking about doing this, I kind of had this epiphany moment. And I've said this to many of my clients in the past month and a half who have chronic pain. And the response has almost been the same every single time, which is they look at me and they say, please don't say that to me. I didn't like what you just said, which is an interesting response. And what I say to them is I go, it's important to remember. And even though it's hard to hear, it's important to remember that pain, be it chronic or acute, pain is always a positive experience. We just don't like thinking of it as a positive experience, but it's always based on protection. So if I put my hand on something hot, the pain tells me to remove my hand. If I step on something sharp, the pain is what has me move. And so that reflex system that is based off of a sensory component, painful stimulus and threat perception is designed purely to protect the human species. We just don't like thinking of it as this is a positive experience for me. And if I have chronic low back pain, which I had for 20 years and every now and then it flares up, but it's mostly gone. When we have chronic back pain, for example, or I still have chronic knee pain because I don't have any meniscus left in my knee and I go skiing. So when I'm done skiing, my knee hurts for a couple of days, but that pain is designed as a protective mechanism. And it's telling me, Pay attention to what you're doing. This hurt. If you continue this process without modification, you'll either injure yourself more significantly, <clears throat> you'll die, or you'll tear something. And if you pay attention to the pain and you modify accordingly, you should be able to protect yourself. 
Now, even when pain gets out of hand and it's chronic and the structure is stable, like, you know, herniated discs reabsorb in roughly eight to 12 months. So the structure is healthy, but the low back pain can persist for a long time. So now that pain, its protective mechanism is not so much based off of you have structural damage, which you might further inst- uh, further aggravate, but instead it's based off of your pain is being highlighted as a protective mechanism when you reach what we would call allostatic overload. You're overwhelmed. And we go into that in the class on how pain becomes a response through and if I have to explain this later, let me know how pain becomes a response through habituation and caloric deficiency or caloric load. The brain's response to anything is going to be always based off of habit and experience. And so if you're used to experiencing chronic pain, then your brain and your body are going to be more ready to re-experience that pain more easily. And so if we have stressors that are overwhelming us and we go into allostatic overload, the brain's response will be, I'm overwhelmed. I'm hyper-stressed. We need to calm down. So what's one thing I can do to get them to calm down? I can tell this human individual they're in pain and that should modify behavior. It should reduce stress. And so again, that pain in that scenario is still a positive experience. It's still saying you're Oh, your allostatic overload is too high. You need to bring it down. Um, and that's, or you need to increase your ability to handle stress, which is the preferable goal as opposed to reducing stresses. It's adapt your lifestyle to handle more stress with less pain. Um, and so that's kind of how that pain component plays into it over time, where it's the evolution of how the body reacts to pain really plays into it. And as a society, we like ignoring pain. We like taking NSAIDs. We like ice. We like doing activity that doesn't hurt. We like complaining about pain as though it was a negative. Oh my God, I can't do anything. My back hurts. Pain is a positive experience. We just don't like it being a positive experience because it means we have to embrace it and change accordingly. Mark, you and I get accused of toxic positivity. And this this fucking this guy over here, over here is trying to tell the world that their pain is positive <laughs> i don't even i don't even know what to say there <laughs> i quit being a motivational speaker but i should have done it <laughs> yeah so i can i can understand why a chronic pain patient might not like you telling them that i, I i've had I, I a lot of complaints saying. about that sentence i get what you're saying I'm a chronic pain patient mark is a chronic pain patient when how I do you hear, feel when i hear that i don't care like it does it doesn't affect me in a negative way hearing that this is where I fall off with pain people, pain dudes, pain pain people. In, in period. Um, I, I I understand everything you're saying. I get it. I get it. I get it. But most of the folks that 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 talk this talk, they do it in such an absolute. They say it in such an absolute, and 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 I know it's not meant as an absolute, but you know your colleagues that do this talk. And it does come off as such an absolute, and that's where I that's where I fall off all the time. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's where you're falling into that conflict that people tend to exist or create, self-create, because it obviously doesn't have to exist between evidence-based medicine and biopsychosocial approach, because people tend to go it's an all or a nothing component. When you know people forget that Stoddard's approach to those was not one or the other; it was a triad. Yeah, you know, there's there's a there's it's a tripod of behavior. And I think the interaction of the two of them together, you know, pain, like when somebody comes in with an acute injury and they go, I, I sprained my, my ankle or I broke a bone. I'm not going to say, oh, it's all in your head, buddy. 
Good luck with that. You know, just go and move. No, they have an acute injury. <laughs> they have tissue damage. It's it's visible. It's obvious. And when they come in and they're eight months later and they get acute chronic symptoms where they're mostly chronic with acute flare-ups, I'm not going to tell them it's all in their head, but I'm going to tell them that part of it is in their head and part of it's in their tissue. And when they come in and they go, I've had pain for 30 years, I'm not going to tell them it's all in their head because it's not. It's in their body. You know, your head is ironically enough in and part of your body and your brain is in your body. So I have a hard time when people say, oh, it's all in your head. No, that's part of the human experience as part of the body. The two have to work together. So I'm not going to send them to get biofeedback or psychology. I'm going to treat the injury. And then I'm going to tell them if you've only ever treated the injury in the past and you're still seeing someone, it's because it hasn't worked. So only treating the injury is obviously not the solution. So instead of just treating your injury as a structural or functional component, what we're going to do is we're going to mix the two together. We're I'm going to treat your structure and your function here in the clinic. We're going to give you exercises. And then you're going to go home and you're going to journal around your duration of pain, your intensity of pain, your frequency of pain, your symptoms of pain, what helps it go away, what's it feel, what makes it feel better. And like I had a new client today uh, for an Achilles tendon who's a, a runner And he's about to go to the Boston Marathon. And what I was describing it to him is I used to be a smoker. I think, were you guys smokers? Mm -hmm. So I used to be a smoker for like 16 years. And when I stopped smoking, you know, you're taught, oh, you quit smoking. And I realized when I was doing a lot of neuroplasticity stuff, I never quit smoking. I learned not to smoke. It's a big difference, right? The the result is the same. It's, It's like looking at a toonie. It's the same result, but you're looking at a polar bear and I'm looking at the queen's head. One of them is you quit smoking. And one of them is I learned not to smoke. So I learned a new habit. And that new habit became dominant. So the old habit was no longer present. And that's what happens with pain. You've learned to be in chronic pain. So you have a structural component. And now you have a brain component. And the two together make it where it seems permanent. So if we help the structure at home with exercises and kinesthetic awareness and things like that, the clients can manage the brain portion because that's out of my scope of practice, but they can handle that portion at home on their own. And then between the two of them together, they can learn to be pain-free through activity, exercise, and treatment and self-awareness. And that's really where I find we move away from the absolutes of pains in the brain or pains in the body because it's it's in everything. It's It's the two of them together. It's in our life circumstances. So what do you do in this scenario? Again, going back to the majority of the talk that I hear with the the pain community, and it's all about educating your clients, educating your clients. You must educate, like you must. If you don't, you're not doing the you're not doing service to your clients. But I I I've been practicing for a long time, and I've had a vast numbers of people come through my doors. And I'm not going to lie, there's probably a very small percentage of people that would actually care to be educated about this stuff. Maybe it's just me, because I read it on Facebook all the time. Oh, the key thing is you have to educate. I'm like, well, you know what? Sometimes clients just don't care to be educated. I'm one of them. Do you know what I mean? And and so when the focus, ironically running an education company, <laughs> as, as, as a patient, got to say that's as, funny. As a patient with 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 whatever conditions I'm rolling into, you know, and, and I speak for the average Joe, right? That that so I I, I want to hear 
like a different a different approach to it than someone yelling patient education is the most important thing when dealing with chronic pain i'm like okay that's cool that's cool try yeah. try telling this so my, try telling this to me do you know what i mean yeah yeah my my response to that would be the same as i would give to any type of therapy whatsoever if it helped that client that was the most important thing if it didn't help them it's absolutely not the most important thing if if i don't like before i did this stuff I was treating clients for almost 10 years. A lot of them got better. I did not know any of the stuff I know now. Was Does it mean that they weren't getting better and they were lying because I wasn't educating them? No, not at all. It means a lot of this stuff was taking place in the brain without me being aware of what was happening. And all of this pain education, the pain neuroeducation, the behavioral, neuro, the be, uh, behavioral education, <clears throat> a lot of those things like you know, like you've sat in the class, I teach PNE, pain neuroeducation science, and I teach behavioral neuroscience, and I teach memory short and long term and the behaviors of it and, and the consequences of habituation and long term potentiation, blah, 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 blah. A lot of those things, the reason we teach them is because it's valuable for the therapist to know. Because if I see 90, if I see 100 clients and 99 of them that get better, but that pain education is the thing that got the 100th better. I did a better job. Now, if I don't need it for the 99, that's fine, but I might need it for the last one. And so when someone says that's it's an end all or be all, to me, I see that as someone who is, uh, I, I know you guys aren't the PC show, so it doesn't really matter, but it's, I don't want to necessarily upset anybody who happens to be a colleague as well. <laughs> when somebody walks in with that opinion into a conversation with me, which I get quite frequently, especially face-to-face at conventions. Right. My approach is always, there's nothing wrong with being fixated in an opinion. Nothing wrong with that. As long as you're willing to deal with the consequences of that opinion. And more often than not, when we're fixated in an opinion, our results are proportional. The broader our understanding and expanse and our willingness to be flexible in our theory the more likely we will have a broader response in our results. And a good example is faith healing. Oh, reflexology is a great example. Sorry to any reflexologists out there. I don't believe in reflexology. Uh, it is the only treatment I go get, however. I absolutely, I mean, my reflexologist tells me stuff all the time and I'm like, I absolutely don't believe that. But you know what? It is by far the best treatment that I have ever received. Is it because it's her? Is it because it's the environment? Is it because it's, that I'm intentionally doubting it for whatever reason it is like, I don't get massages anymore. I haven't got a massage in probably three years. I don't get chiropractic. I don't, I get osteo every now and then because I'm in a clinic with some osteos, but I will get reflexology every single month. And yet I'm fully not believing the science of it. And the reason is, is that there's a part of me that said, just because you don't believe it absolutely doesn't make it a reality. It doesn't also mean that it doesn't have the potential to help you. It just means I may not understand it. That's all. This is why I enjoy your classes. This is why I want you teaching more stuff with us. This is why I like you at the Canadian Massage Conference. Because you speak about this stuff very, very different than the majority of the squeaky wheels that speak about this stuff. Mm. And I appreciate it. I I, th- I think I learned a long time ago that there's very few end all be alls in this world. You know, gravity is the only constant we have, but it's only a constant on Earth. Yeah, and I mean, when it comes to dealing with humans, like you know, we started out the conversation with there's just 
There's just way too many factors and each person's experience is different. Their human experience is different. So, you know, I, I, a client came to my mind. I've been treating her. I mean, I haven't seen her in a couple of years now, but I was treating her for years and I felt like I knew everything about her and her life. And originally she came to me with an acute shoulder injury. We dealt with that, right? You know, a couple treatments, bingo, bango. She was, she was in a good place. Is this the lady you were seeing in the fall when I was there? No, it was not. Okay. <laughs> this, is, this is a totally different client. But this client came to my mind because she came to me with a shoulder condition and we dealt with it. Cool. And then I honestly didn't know if I was going to see her again because she came with something very specific. And after a couple of treatments, I remember her coming back in and she she swore I was magic. She was like, you fixed me. You fixed." I said, well, I didn't fix you, but you know, I'm glad to see that your range of motion is back. There's no more pain, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so every couple of weeks, she would book a treatment. And every time she would come in, I would ask her the same questions. But the the gist of it was basically like, you know, anything bothering you, anything you want me to work on. And she would basically tell me like, no, I just like you. And I like your treatment style. And I like coming to get massage. And that's why I'm coming. And it was always like, no, there's no pain. No, there's no pain. Without fail, guys, every single treatment. So this is like every two weeks over the course of years. Sometime in the middle of the treatment, she would tell me something like, you know, oh, yeah, the other day I went to get up off the couch and I couldn't move or like, you know, my my knee buckled here. and And I would always say to her, like, why when I ask you when you walk in? If there's anything that we need to focus on, like, why don't these things come up? She would never say anything until we were like, sometimes almost at the very end of the treatment. And she was like, because these are just little normal aches and pains that humans have. Why am I going to complain about this? You know, you're, you're, you're bringing up such an interesting point because it goes to what I was talking about earlier about embracing pain as a positive experience. Yeah. But it's also much more multifaceted that we're looking at generationally, you know, for a long time people just didn't talk about themselves. Social media has really changed that for a long time. Um, You know, depending on the religion or your culture, you grow up and you don't literally talk to other sexes. You don't talk to, you know, so there's all these components where they may not have historically talked about their own personal experience because they were taught to be timid or they were shy or for whatever reason. But even let's say we get rid of all that. There's still this underlying thing of, oh, it's just the normal, like you said, it's a normal everyday ache and pain that all humans naturally experience, which is so, it it downplays the importance of pain in their life so much, as opposed to owning it and saying, no, this pain that I'm experiencing has value, it has importance, I can do something about it, I can live with it, I can modify it, I can treat it, um, I can hide it, I can get rid of it with, you know, with medication, but as opposed to taking a moment to stop and address the pain, they just go normal experience, but they'll never even address that. Oh, there was, I'm pain-free. They're willing to take the pain for a second and just try to ignore it, but they're not willing to embrace it. And I think embracing, you know, Gretchen Schlemmer, who's a um, doctor at the unit or a PhD doctor on psychology at the university of Arizona talks a lot about our experience of pain and how hiding from it as a society has really created a culture of avoidance of pain and fear of pain. And for a long time, and, and it's changing in manual therapy, but for a long time, you know, the whole theory was, oh, it hurts when I do this. Well, don't do it. You know, it was the joke, but people would do that. They would, oh, it hurts when I garden. Well, don't garden. It's hurting your back. And we're realizing more and more, you know, that that's obviously not the approach. Movement is by far a more beneficial approach. But for a long time, and it's still deeply ingrained in the culture that it's just take a pill and avoid the pain. 
avoid the pain, ignore the pain. Um, and, and people don't, people don't like thinking about themselves in pain and embracing it. And I think, I think it's very detrimental. I think it's a, a background noise or stress that we build up and that makes it where we are able to manage less stress in general, because we're like always trying to avoid discomfort in our body. Um, you know, having been someone who lived with chronic pain for 20 plus years, it's, it's very, it consumes a lot of energies, just living with pain and ignoring it. And ironically enough, it feels like it would consume more energy to pay attention to our pain, but we tend to actually consume less energy by embracing it. Um, it doesn't mean it'll go away. That's not the theory. You know, embracing pain doesn't mean it goes away. It just means you're aware of it. And so what, you're do, so what it. do you mean by embrace it? I, I'm asking this because like that woman, I realized that majority, I would say, let's say out of seven days, I would say at least four out of seven days. I am dealing with some sort of pain, whether it's like, oh, my foot hurts today, or, you know, I've got this, this thing that comes and goes with my left SI joint. Sometimes I feel totally fine. I'm pain free. And sometimes it pisses me off and it'll, you know, be there for a week or so. But I go about my day to day. Like, I, I know it's there, but I don't stop doing what I'm doing. I am very, very bad for like actually going and getting treatment or doing anything. But so what do you mean by embrace it? Like, do I just have to acknowledge it? I acknowledge it, but then I carry on just like my yeah. client does. So, I, uh, Mark, can I pick you apart for a second? Yeah, sure. It's okay if you don't want to. I'm, I'm going to talk about your chronic pain. How would you describe your pain? Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I would describe my pain. Maybe ask me a different question. How intense is your pain? Does it ever make you grimace? Or does it ever make you stop doing activities? Um, I continue doing whatever I want to do, whether I'm in discomfort or not. So okay. it doesn't really stop. Already there, it tells me that you've learned enough about pain to notice the difference. You said the word discomfort, and I asked about pain. So when a client, like what you had just said, Amanda, says, I'm in pain every day, my first question for them to embrace their pain is to have them understand, is it painful or is it discomfort? Because discomfort, yes, pe people live with discomfort all the time. Sometimes it's present, sometimes it's not. Pain, meaning causing a grimace or more or sharp and acute, usually that's an alarm that demands uh, that the, the individual modify behavior to reduce the intensity of discomfort or pain, or to reduce the fact that it's sharp and acute. So uh, an example would be lifting a heavy weight over your shoulders at 75 pounds. Okay, if it causes sharp pain, or it causes a grimace, you should probably reduce it where it's no longer sharp and causing a grimace. It doesn't mean stop movement. It means modify movement to make it a not a painful experience, to make it an uncomfortable experience. That's embracing pain. It's realizing this is pain. And because it's pain, I have to modify behavior until it's no longer painful. And then when it's not no longer painful, I can gradually increase the resistance of my movement to have non-painful experiences. And so that's the first aspect. It is having them define, is it sharp? Is it achy? Is it dull? Is it tense? Is it tight? Is it stiff? Is it numb? Is it no sensation whatsoever? Is it burny? Is it ants? Description of pain becomes very valuable in our ability to really, you know, have kinesthetic awareness and integrate the pain. Intensity of pain is a big one. How intense is it? Is it, you know, grimace? Is it with, with the intensity, it, it, because that also allows me to put it into context. So, for example, if you had asked me on a pain scale from 1 to 10, 10 being the most pain you've ever felt, 1 being very little, what, what would you say my back is on the worst day ever? 
I would give it a number. And then if you ask me, well, can you tell me what the highest level of pain you've ever experienced was and what what was the cause of that pain? Then it puts everything mm-hmm. to context. I said discomfort. Someone else might say that's pain. I've had second yeah. degree burns to my face. That's fucking pain, right? Even when my lower back gives out and I can't walk, to me, that's not the same level of pain as the second degree burns to my face, right? But so usually we would describe it in context of saying a 10 would be, I have to go to the emergency room. If you're not in the emergency room, it's not a 10. A five would be if you're physically making a grimace, your face winces, you change structure of your face and you make a face. That's a five. Zero is pain. There's absolutely no discomfort. My body feels normal or nothing. There's no sensation whatsoever. So usually we give it within that level of context and then descriptive text. And another good one. I mean, you guys are both clinicians. You've probably heard this before. How often are you in discomfort? Oh, I'm always in pain. I have pain all the time, 24 seven. And then I ask them, do you have pain when you sleep? Some say yes. And some say, no, I don't feel anything when I sleep. Well, already there's a shift in mentality. Oh, so your pain's not 24 seven. Your pain is waking hours. So embracing pain means defining pain and coming to a realistic understanding of I have pain when I walk up and down the stairs, but when I sit down, I don't have pain. So my pain's not all day long. You know, and a lot of people just say, oh, I, I'm always in pain. And then when you have them define it, they really realize, oh, my pain is takes up maybe physically my actual stimulus of discomfort might consume two to three hours of my day, but it consumes my brain space 24 hours a day, even though the reality of the actual sensation is different. So when I say embrace pain, I really means we define pain. We really have our, you know, my first sessions with every one of my clients the intake is usually 30 to 45 minutes on its own, where it's just tell me about your discomfort, when it's been, how long it's been, how many years has it been? Has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? Things like that. Yeah, I definitely think putting in just perspective. I I, ne- I didn't really know what you meant by that, but I'm, I am thinking about how all-consuming pain can be. So at the end of 2020, I got in a car accident and I was in what I felt like a considerable amount of pain. Um, I likely had a concussion. I had whiplash. So, you know, some days it was like my upper back was hurting. Some days it was in my neck. Some days I was having headaches. Some days it was my chest and my pecs. Some days it was my shoulder, but I was, I was in pain, you know, movement caused pain, doing regular activities of daily life caused pain, like washing my hair, just having my hands up here. That was painful. So, I remember one day turning to Mark and just saying to him, he didn't like it when I said it the first time, and now I'm going to repeat it three years later. I must really like want to get in trouble. But I turned to him and I said, no wonder you're so fucking grumpy all the time. Like, I'm so miserable right now. I hate everybody. I hate everything. I don't want anyone to look at me or talk. Like, I was... I had such a short fuse. You are very pleasant, my dear. You are the most pleasant to everybody else. To everybody else. (laughs) He's pretty chill when he has a beer in his hand. Maybe that (laughs) is the bigger question. Yeah, maybe it's me. (laughs) But you bring you bring up a so you bring up a great point around allesthetic load. I mean, what you described is literally just being overwhelmed. You know, and so I do it. I do it in the class, and uh, I don't think you were there for that part of the class. I think it was on the first day. Um, We do an exercise, which I give my clients to do at home, which is imagine your life is a glass, and fill it with whatever you want. Fill it with your life, but remember that your life includes things like going to the bathroom. It includes things like breathing. It includes things 
<clears throat> like working and in exercising, uh, not exercising. It includes watching TV. It includes the light that you're in is in your room right now. It includes the volume of the noise in the general area, the temperature, gravity, all that kind of stuff. Normally on a given day, your jar, your glass, whatever it is, would be filled roughly 40 to 50%, which means you have about room for about 60 to 50% of more information before you feel overwhelmed, you know, before that road rage really kicks in. Chronic pain on its own kind of consumes about 40 to 50% of that glass on its own as well, which means if you have chronic pain and you live a life, when you wake up, you're at 80% pain full which means you've only got 20% for extra information, a kid misbehaving, a partner in you fighting, uh, a traffic jam, an accident where you're going to be late, a board meeting, whatever it is, a a deadline. So that's only 20%. And if it overfills, guess what happens? We go into fight, flight, freeze. We go into sympathetic responses where we're overwhelmed. So we have fight as a response, freeze, or, um, or, or uh, sorry, fight, flight, freeze. And so if you wake up and you're already, let's say, in pain and you're already stressed, well, you wake up, you're at 100%. That means stubbing your toe or being five minutes late or your coffee not being the right temperature or running out of half and half. That's it. You're going to murder it, someone. It, it. You, and so when you say, you know, you just couldn't handle it, you were annoyed. Of course you were annoyed. Your glass was way more full than you were historically prepared to handle. The problem with chronic pain is that most of the time in Western society, People want to empty out the glass, but like you guys have lives, how much in your life is in it is not essential. How much do you really be, how much are you like, you know what, these are completely things that are stresses in my life that I don't need and that I could absolutely get rid of and no part of my life would be worse off for the wear for it. Most humans don't have that much. Most have their families, they have their jobs and they want to stay in shape. There's a minimum level of stress right there. So when people try to reduce what's in the jar. Most people try to take a bath, meditate, get a massage, go for a walk in the woods. And they try to diminish the amount of information that is coming into the glass. But the problem is that's a temporary solution that actually, and we talk about this in the class with long-term potentiation and synaptic behavior, the more frequently we empty out the glass, the lower we, uh, the lower we create, we diminish our threshold for stimulus. So the solution is not to empty out the glass. The solution is to increase the size of the glass. That's all. The information inside doesn't change. Just get a bigger glass. And and people, you know, we do that all the time. We do that every day of our life. We increase the size of glass. Like, you know, I, I live in Quebec. And when I first moved back to Quebec in 2018, I've spoken French my whole life, but I had never spoken medical French. For the first six months, I had headaches every single day as I was treating in my clinic because I was learning all the terms in French and it was brutal for me, but that was increasing the glass. That was literally my brain expanding its ability to understand something. You learn a new language that's increasing the glass. You learn a new instrument that's increasing the glass. And so learning to be pain-free is just increasing the glass. It's not about diminishing the information that goes in. It's about changing the vessel. So you're going to be teaching this class again here coming up next month. What other things are in the works? You mentioned um, a couple of them, but I know that you're planning to come back um, hopefully to the Canadian Massage Conference and teach some stuff. So what are the other things that people can expect to see from you this year? Uh, The one that I'm really excited about at the Canadian Massage Conference will be, if it happens, it's an eight-hour class. So it'll be an all-day course on an ASMR massage. 
And the goal will be really to set up an environment and create a full treatment, full body protocol around ASMR responses inside the body. And so we'll be playing with volume of our voice, you know, learning to talk at a slower cadence and a whisper to our clients, touching and learning to increase the speed, change the feel of people and the volume, see how they respond to that. We'll be learning to touch at different speeds and depths. Uh, we'll be using lighting uh, and we'll be using texture. So not only different lotions, but we'll actually be using, you know, gloves. Uh, some people would be latex. That's what they'll like. Some people it'll be like, uh, you know, loofahs, things like that during the treatments as well, uh, let alone cupping or eye stem and things like that. Uh, so really creating a session that's based off around a lot of ASMRs touches, which the main triggers being the first one being tactile, uh, second one being auditory and visual, or in the third being visual. So we'll be using all those together to create a change uh, and, and a full body treatment based on that specifically, which which should be interesting because only about 20% of the population get ASMR responses. But everybody gets what's just below ASMR. You know, an ASMR response, they call it brain gasms. I happen to get them. And so I, I've studied quite a bit of it, especially with a doctor in the University of Essex, Dr. Guglia Peoria, who I did a podcast with, uh, where we talk about the integration of ASMR and manual therapy. Um, and uh, just short of having that extreme ASMR response, we get what are called frissons, where we get like the tickle, you know, the the uh, where you get chills, essentially. Um, and everybody can have those. And a lot of people get those in massage and a lot of people talk about feeling them. So the goal is to replicate those and see what it does to our stress, our, our response of relaxation in the body. That'll be a fun one. Uh, the other one that I really liked that I had to do last year that I did for the Canadian Massage Conference was the hour-long How Massage Therapy Works. But this year, I want to present it at four hours, which I think is a more appropriate form where we delve into eight key components of how massage therapy uh, affects the human body. The first being ASMR, the second being the physiology, which is easily one of the most well-understood already biotensegrity, which is well understood, but then we get into some less understood, like the pain neuroeducation science, the behavioral neuroscience, memory, laughter, uh, client patient responsibilities, um, and all these together, how they, how they all individually impact this client, but how they interact all together to create a session and how it's the interaction of every single one of those components that makes a massage successful. It's never one thing that made a success, uh, massage successful. It is always the interaction of all eight. And that's why, like earlier on, Mark, when you said, what do you say to somebody who has this mindset of it's you know, always pain edu or patient education? They're hyper-focused on one. You know, and I used to do that with structuralism and functional movement. That was very much part of my treatment protocols, a lot of orthopedic care and stuff like that. And that was all I did for a long time with, with results. Um but I wasn't really aware that the rest of the stuff was taking place. And now I just try to balance everything together where we'll use the science of biotensegrity as a component, as a possible component to their treatment. We'll use the idea that memory, laughter, and pain education is a component to their treatment. We'll use the context of ASMR and the behavior uh, and responsibilities to finish up the treatment. So there's more of a balanced approach to all these different components that affect the human experience and treatment. And that's a good point because there's a lot of therapists that are utilizing a lot of these strategies that just don't even know what they're called and yeah. don't know what they're doing and they're getting great results, but they're actually utilizing these strategies informally. I mean, the first one is context. ASMR, the number one thing for an ASMR 
response, chill response is context. So that involves rapport. And every client is taught rapport in school. You know, create trust with your client, have music that they enjoy, whether that's Eminem or whether that's Enya, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, whether it's a dark environment or a bright environment, it depends on what the context is that the therapist is trying to create. But everybody does that naturally. And so a lot of these things already happen. It's just now I want us to all understand how individually they have an effect on the body because if you're not getting the results with a client, it might be that we're hyper-focused on one component, like structuralism for a very long time, but maybe we just need to branch out and focus on other components. Sorry, I interrupted you, Amanda. No, that's. I was just going to say, um, yeah, I, I meant to say this earlier, that that was something that you said in the class when I sat in, that the stuff you're teaching is just like adding another tool. You know, you take classes, you take modalities and things like that to add a tool. This is just adding another tool, another piece of knowledge to add to uh, your treatments. And like you said, a lot of the stuff, we're likely incorporating things, but we don't even, we don't know why we're doing certain things and we don't know what we're doing. And this is just giving us a little bit more knowledge to be able to, you know, formulate our treatment plans with a little bit more knowledge rather than just, oh, I did this and it worked. And that's great. Because like you said, it is great, but you want to be able to replicate these things. So exactly, this is fantastic. And by the time I see you next, when you are here teaching, by then we will have uh, the lineup set for the Canadian Massage Conference. So we'll be able to tell you exactly who's going to be there and what you're going to be teaching. Um, so everybody listening, also look out for that. We will have that done by March. And the conference is in September. Of course, we're doing another conference, a smaller one in Halifax in June. Um, but for anyone who's listening that wants uh, to learn more about Troy or maybe take one of these courses, um, Troy, you can feel free to give out your website, your socials. And then also, of course, you can find his Sensory Approach to Manual Therapy course on the ConEd website. Uh, yeah, it's just sensoryapproach.com is the website. It'll take you to another website called Learning with Troy because I don't only teach sensory stuff. I teach other courses as well. Um, and then my Instagram page is sensoryapproach.com or sensoryapproach on Instagram. And my assistant, Anna, runs that and she does a great job and she'll fill you with a lot of information. And if she can't answer any of the questions that people have, um, I she'll, she'll loop me in and I'll do them. Um, I sometimes do Instagram lives, but I post a lot of my new podcast material there as well, which is just called the sensory approach to manual therapy. Um, yeah. And then I'm, I'm going to be teaching like this year, my 2023 calendar is absolutely booked solid. I'm not taking any more classes this year. I'm booking 2024 already. Um, but if you guys are going to be in the Toronto area, I'll be there twice this year teaching and once for the CMC. So I'm really excited to bring it back. And uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be great. And I love teaching this stuff. Obviously it's fun and there's a lot of hands-on stuff. It doesn't sound like it, but there's a lot of hands-on stuff in there. It really is. Like I said, I was very shocked. I was expecting to come in and have Troy lecture at me for a day, but he didn't. So <laughs> <laughs> definitely come check out the class. I learned a lot in day two. Maybe I'll sit in on day one this time. <laughs> Well, thank you for hanging out with us again, Troy. Uh, Mark, do you have anything before we wrap up? No, man. You're awesome. That's all. <laughs> I'm excited to see you guys again, man. It's always fun to come to Toronto and hang out with you guys. Right on. You guys have been listening to Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. Peace.